Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. The Revs ended group play in the MLS's back tournament with a nil-nil draw against Toronto FC. It wasn't a terrible result considering Bruce Arena opted to rotate some players out of the starting lineup. Gustavo Bo and Christian Pena came on in the 60th minute, while Carles Heel sat out entirely due to a nagging foot injury. Overall, the tie means the Revs will end up as the two or three seed in the Group C standings, depending on it results later on tonight. Uh, but it also means that the Revs have clinched a spot in the round of 16. I'm Greg Johnstone. Joining me today is Sean Donahue. Sean, how's it going? Good, good. It was a you know interesting game for the Revolution, a zero-zero draw, but there were you know it was no shortage of action, controversial penalty kick, non-calls, and uh, plenty of other stuff. But um, you know, exciting to have the Revs moving on and advancing. And Sean, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can take away from a zero-zero game, but I want to know what your key takeaway was from today's uh, 9 a.m. matchup. Yeah, I mean, the the easy one would be to to go back to my takeaway from. Uh, you know, three episodes ago, which is that the Revolution just aren't very good without Carles Heel, or at least aren't good enough to actually, you know, be a threat without Carles Heel. And they're even worse without Carles Heel and Gustavo Bo on the field. Um, but there's, a, you know, a lot of different directions you could go on this one. Um, and, you know, they need somebody to step up when their star players are out. And I don't think anyone really stepped up in the first half of this game. Uh, you know, Teal Bunbury was the captain for this game. And, and I don't think he was involved enough. Um, he finished the game after 59 minutes of just 20 touches. Um, so, yeah, there, you know, there was a lot that went wrong for the revolution in this game. And, you know, a- at the end of the day, I think part of the problem is, you know, you had a lot of guys. There was there were wholesale changes from the revolution. There were six guys that came out onto the field for the revs in this game that hadn't you know, started the previous games. Whereas Toronto, I think maybe made one or two changes. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, the, the, the biggest thing that happened to the revolution in this game was they looked disjointed with all those changes. They, you know, everyone talks about how much depth the revolution has and, and and maybe they do but they clearly show that they weren't capable of swapping six guys out of the lineup and performing in this one um because for 45 minutes in this game toronto fc was all over them and they were very very lucky to go into halftime not down by multiple goals um and you know some of that's because they've only played two games they haven't had a chance to you know kind of rotate guys in and get them more minutes but um it was asking a lot from bruce arena to put six new guys in there and and make it look make it work um and you know right now it doesn't work and i think you know, the biggest thing, again, is, you know, without their two big star players, um, you know, without either of their two big star players, I think the Revolution are in trouble. And, you know, when when two of your DPs are out for a game and it's the caliber of Carles heel and Gustavo Bo, um, the Revolution might have better depth than they have in years past, but they can't replace those guys. I'm going to skip ahead to the first question I have here just because it's a bit relevant, but some people were freaking out about the lineups. Uh, and if you were freaking out about the lineups, I assume you didn't listen to our podcast uh, on Saturday or, or just don't listen to us in general. But um, a lot of people were kind of freaking out that uh, it was too soft of a lineup for a uh, game that had such implications on the standings of whether or not they, they could move into that one seed. Um, Sean, how do you think Bruce handled, uh, Bruce Arena handled the lineups today? Do you, do you think he did the right thing rotating in players? Yeah, I, I think he did what he had to do. I mean, you, you look at this game, it started off 84 degrees, 77% humidity, and you have all these guys that were just coming off playing Friday night. Going Friday night into Tuesday morning is a very difficult thing to do, um, and it's especially a very difficult thing to do when you're playing in that kind of heat and that kind of humidity, and it just got hotter as the game wore on. I don't think any you know soccer player likes playing a competitive match at 9 in the morning, and even more so on short rest, so I think Bruce Arena did what he had to do. I mean, Carles Hill, obviously, uh, you know, a forced injury they couldn't play him Gustavo Bo is 30 um, and he is such a key player for this revolution team you know you'd like to without Carles Hill out there have him out there but you know I think it was very smart to to keep him on the bench um, you know less so with guys like Adam Buxa who are you know in their early 20s where who may be able to put up with this more um, but it made sense to rest a lot of the veterans and I think you know as we talked about in the last show it made sense to bench the center back pairing regardless because you know Mancian and De La Mea for different reasons uh, hadn't you know whether it was injury or errors I think it was time to make that change so I, I think what Bruce Arena did was the right thing um, but at the same time it, it didn't look like he had the guys that were out there prepared enough to kind of step up and, and perform 
Um, so that's kind of what more of my concern is. But, you know, a- absolutely. The Revolution, I, you know, pretty much clinched advancement before this game. They would have had to have lost this game by four or more goals to not advance. Um, so, yeah, you know, you you rest your guys, you you know, try to get a result and you, you live to fight another day. And I think that was the, the way to go on a game like this. Because, uh, again, th- there was no full preseason here. These guys have played a lot of these guys played two 90 minute matches um, and, you know, those were their first competitive games since since March. So uh, to then ask them to go out there again on a, on a Tuesday morning, I think was a bit much. And you, know, you were risking guys getting injured, more guys than Carly's heel. If there's any criticism you can make about Bruce Arena, it's if you're going to field a weakened lineup, why put Adam Buxa out there? Why not put Justin Rennicks and give him 60 minutes and then put Buxa out there um, along with Bo and Christian Pena? Maybe put all three of them out there all at the same time and give them 30 minutes. Um, obviously, this game does go towards MLS regular season standings, so maybe he didn't want to, um, you know, go too hard on the B team and kind of, you know, take out Buxa kind of towards the end as he did. But um, overall, I, I think this was something that he had to do. It's, it's not just about the short rest, too, about looking back on the game Saturday and the short rest today. You know, the next game might be as early as Saturday. So if you're going 90 minutes, if Gustavo Bo is going 90 minutes, that's going to be three games over the span of eight days in Orlando. Um, and that, that can't be fun. So I, I think he did some man management, as he said, as we said last episode, um, it would have taken a lot of things to go wrong for the Revs to have not made it into the group stage. And we'll, we'll probably talk about who the Revs will line up against later on in the episode. But um, I, I, there are very few teams that might sneak in as the three seed. There might be a Cincinnati uh, type team that you, that you might have gotten lucky enough to match up against, but there's a very good chance that Toronto FC or DC United gets matched up against an opponent just as strong as the Revs do as the two or three seed. So really, I don't think they're playing for a whole lot. They just had to ensure that they weren't going to lose by four goals. Um, and even then, a, a few other things had to have happened to go wrong. A lot of other things had to happen to go wrong. This this game, the the qualification was more or less in the bag. And I think holding on to your stars and putting them in for a set amount of time, which looked to be 30 to 35 minutes, um, I think that was the way to go. Uh, my key takeaway is that I think this defense is legit. It's been a long time since the Revs have had a, a defense that has been really solid in the back uh, and has really performed well. And, you know, we talked about Montreal not really testing them too much, which was true. And then DC United didn't really get anything going. Uh, either against the Revs, they got that goal off of that fluke playoff, that, that boneheaded move by Tony De La Mea. Well, today you had TFC who has come in, and they have been bagging goals left and right. Uh, they had a really, really, seemed like unstoppable offense with uh, Pozuelo, and for the most part, they were extremely quiet. Uh, Matt Turner did have to come out and make a couple of really, really key saves, but overall, there were only five shots on target. Um, you know, one of those plays on, on Matt Turner's uh, best save of the day was a breakaway where Henry Kessler made a really, really good recovery where the attacker gets in behind him and he, he makes it back. He forces the attacker onto his weak side uh, and, and he kind of helps out Matt Turner in that scenario. So um, we got to see not necessarily the A-team back line because I still think Alexander Butner is preferred over Dewan Jones at left back, but uh, Henry Kessler and Andrew Farrell kind of stepped in today. They looked pretty good, especially Henry Kessler. And um, yeah, I I think that this team is very defensively sound. Three games in the group stage against three Eastern Conference opponents who all going into this tournament we thought were going to be tough opponents for the Revs or at least would make it a game. And the Revs come out of it conceding once, and that was on a sloppy turnover. So uh, overall, I'm really liking what I'm seeing from this defense. Yeah, no, I agree. And I I think you're right, too, that this is, you know, maybe minus Dewan Jones and, and, and replacing him with uh, Bootner, this I think this was kind of the, the Revolution's best back line that we saw in this game. Um, but they also proved in those other two games that you know Michael Mansian and Antonio De La Mea minus one really terrible gaffe by De La Mea, um, you know, are perfectly capable of stepping in too. So um, for a defense that's been much maligned over the years, uh, you know, under Brad Friedel certainly, um, they've shown that these guys can really step up when there's a, a coach that actually kind of has tactics that don't make defenders look bad, which I think was the case with Brad Friedel's tactics. Yep. And I I just want to say, I, I know the Revs named Henry Kessler the man of the match. I think that was through fan voting. I think MLS noted Matt Turner was man of the match. Over the past few games, we've been giving it to players on offense. But Sean, I'm just curious, if you had to assign man of the match, are you giving it to Matt Turner or Henry Kessler? Both of them had phenomenal days today. Yeah, I'm certainly not giving it to anyone on offense for this game. Um, you know, even Andrew Farrell, I thought you could give a shout to. I thought he, you know, actually played pretty well and had some, you know, really good kind of saving plays. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a, a tough a tough question. I think I might actually give the the nod to Henry Kessler, like the fan vote. But I, I could I could make a case for any of those three guys. I think Farrell, Kessler, or Turner. And 
I think we're going to kind of hop into listener questions because all the topics we want to talk about today are more or less asked in the um, from Twitter and from Discord. So we're just going to kind of go straight into the listener question segment. Um, first off, uh, and, and we sort of just answered this a second ago, Any Revs UK asked us, I would like to know your thoughts on what the Revs' best back line is. Uh, I'm going to say Brandon Byatt right back has that really solidified. I think Henry Kessler and Andrew Farrell today looked uh, really, really solid. Um, I know De La Mea, we talked about him last week and uh, kind of his troubles. Mancien too, I think has looked fine in this tournament. Hasn't really been totally tested, but he's looked solid. Um, I think his issue is that he is potentially injury prone. Um, and then I think Alexander Putner looked really good in the Montreal game. Not so great in the DC United game. Um, I imagine since he's a TAM signing, they're going to be using him going forward as the uh, left back and Dewan Jones will be kind of that outside back uh, coming in off the bench at right back and left back. So um, my, my, I, I would say Butner, Kessler, Farrell and Brandon Bai. I don't think either De La Mea or Mancian really changed my mind that Kessler and Farrell are, are not the two best center backs on the team. And I think Kessler and Farrell did very, very well today. So uh, I, I think I still have them as the top two spots. Yeah, no, I'm I'm 100 percent with you, and I think the two of them kind of have complementary skill sets that that work well together. Um, and you know, you mentioned Dewan Jones. You know, Alexander Butner uh, is 31, and I, I don't think he's going to be a guy that can, you know, if there's a midweek game, for example, is going to play three games in a week. So uh, you know, I think there's plenty of minutes to go around for Dewan Jones at left, that left back spot, and I think he's you know perfectly capable of filling in. Uh, it is interesting though that we've seen you know nothing of of Sesenovic in this tournament. Um, you know, I think we we both agreed that he had a pretty poor preseason. Um, but he was a guy that I think we expected to kind of see more minutes at, at left back and maybe push Juwan Jones into maybe more of a, you know, backup right back or midfielder role. Um, but, but nothing from him so far, but you know, I, I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you that the, the best back four right now is by Farrell Kessler and Bootner. Yeah. And it's interesting too, that we, we talked to Dewan Jones before this um, tournament and he said he was you know, practicing at right back uh, and practicing kind of in the midfield. And we've only seen him at left back so far, which is interesting. It makes me wonder if they think that is his position long term. Uh, I still would like to see him attacking, uh, using his speed off the bench to attack. But uh, I, I think we'll have to wait till after the tournament to see that experiment play out. Yeah, um, and they, they had one sub left over in this game. And, you know, I was thinking late in this game, maybe you bring, you know, either Sinovic or, or Butner if he's ready on for a Tejan Buchanan, who I didn't think had a particularly good game and, you know, give Dewan Jones at least a little bit of an opportunity to kind of play more of that attacking role and see what he could offer there. But, um, yeah, we, we, he hasn't gotten any opportunity in this tournament to play anywhere other than left back. Um, and, of course, in college, he was, you know, an attacking winger, not a not a fullback. Um, so he's done well at fullback. But, um, again, you know, as, we, as we've talked about on previous episodes, so it's someone with his speed, it would just be kind of fun to see uh, him get a chance to go at you know, tired legs in the hot heat. Let's move on to another position. Uh, and and we've been talking about this the past two games. Um, the starting midfield today, still Scott Caldwell, still Kellen Rowe. Revolution Reports wants to know what is our starting midfield to the central midfield to for the rest of the tournament. Uh, he endorses Wilfred Zahibo and Kellen Rowe. Sean, what do you think? So I'm I'm kind of on the fence. I think Sahibo should be one of those two guys. I don't like the Scott Caldwell Kellen Rowe pairing, even though it's you know been serviceable um, through three games. If if Sahibo is ready, I think he needs to be one of them. Um, you know, next to him, I can go either way. I think if the Revolution are are facing a team, you know, like a Toronto where. You know, you kind of think of the Revs as the underdogs and you kind of expect their opponent to hold more of the possession Then I think I'd, I'd rather like to see Scott Caldwell out there next to Zahibo as the Revs kind of take a little bit more of a defensive and, and cautious approach to that position. If they're playing a team, um, you know, that's a bit weaker, like a, a Montreal again, and I don't know that you're going to be facing a weaker team, you know, as you get into the knockout rounds, um, then it makes more sense to me to have Kellen Rowe who can provide a bit more on offense. Um, we have seen some good shooting from Kellen Rowe in this game, but, you know, at the same time, he also had, you know, some plays in this game which were a bit poor. Uh, he pulled out of a tackle at one point in this game that led to uh, Toronto having a lot of numbers forward where Toronto, if they had been a bit sharper, I think would have gotten a goal out of it. Um, and, you know, every game you can point to, you know, one or two key plays that uh, Kellen Rowe committed that, you know, led to chances for the other team that you know probably should have been converted. So uh, there is a risk there. Um, you know, I, I also thought he got kind of a you know sloppy yellow card in this game that he didn't need to get that, you know, as a central midfielder, getting a yellow card in the first half kind of puts you in a tough spot. And, you know, I saw some people on, on Twitter suggest that maybe he pulled out of that tackle later because of that yellow card. And that might be true. But, you know, that's a problem in itself. So um, for me, you know, going into the knockout stages, I think Zahibo and Scott Caldwell would probably be my pairing unless the revolution get paired up against somebody that for you know whatever reason seems like a weaker opponent. Although I, I kind of disagree with you. I'm going to agree with the Revolution Report. I think Kellen Rose had a very solid um, 
solid performance. Uh, I don't know. I'm not totally sold on Scott Caldwell. I think he's played very well, but there are just some times where he's not very impactful on the game, uh, and he's fine. (laughs) What? This game in general, I think he didn't have a particularly impactful or good game. The last two, I would say. I mean, I, I we we talked, and also I want to point a clarification. We said last game last week that he Scott Caldwell had a good game. I, I want to say good for the role he was told to play. Not that he was this great impact player. There was a little, I, I got a comment about um, that we called Scott Caldwell good last game, and he was you know more or less okay. You know, a bit average, but uh, I, I guess I just mean uh, he didn't he didn't screw up. And today there wasn't really any any screw ups on his point again. But um, Scott Caldwell just isn't an impact player in the midfield. And, um, I, I don't know. I think Kellen Rowe is able to, uh, I, I like his ability to shoot from long range. Uh, I think he's been a pretty decent passer. I think he's had three pretty solid performances, uh, better performances than, than what we've seen from Scott Caldwell. So I, I know he's a bit of a liability defensively. He might not be the best defensive player. And if you do face against, uh, let's say LAFC, hypothetically, you know, maybe you do want to go with a more defensive pairing, but if you get a team such as let's say San Jose, who, who's a potential opponent for the next round or Philadelphia, Philadelphia, um, I, I think Kellen Rowe gives you uh, more dividends uh, offensively and in possession than Scott Caldwell does. Well, and you might need the offense, too, if, if Carly's heel is out long term. So that's, that's a, another kind of factor that weighs in. One, one question. We haven't given any consideration to Diego Fagundes in the central midfield. Um, are we are we ruling him out of, of this conversation? To me, he, he played today in the um, Carly's heel role and, and played pretty well and then pushed back to the central midfield. Uh, I, I'm kind of souring on Diego Fagundes in the central midfield. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, if he's next to Zahibo, I can see it more than, you know, being next to a row or a Caldwell. Um, but to me, he's still kind of the third option there. I, I like him more in an attacking role. And, um, you know, he got a lot of stick for not doing much you know, two games ago when he came in for, for Carly's heel. I thought he was a bit better in this game, uh, particularly in the second half. Um, nobody looked good in the first half, but particularly in the second half, I thought he was a bit better. He actually led the team with, with 55, well, led the team other than Brandon by, uh, with 55 touches and, you know, created a chance and had, you know, three shots and, and came close to scoring. So, um, is he a, you know, Carles heel impact player? Absolutely not. But I'd rather see him in that role if Carles heel is unavailable than, um, kind of pushing back into a central midfield role. I just don't think he offers enough bite defensively. Um, and, you know, perhaps offers even less than a Kellen Rowe does. We got another question just covering the rest of the field. Rennie Swan asks us, what is the best Revs lineup for offense? How do we increase quality chances and then finishing? Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts, Sean? Um, I mean, in my mind, I think we're going to see those the, the top four that we saw from the first two games. Christian Pena, uh, Carles Hill, Gustavo Bo as kind of the attacking midfield, uh, and then Adam Buxa up top. Um, I, I don't think you have any disagreements with that lineup, but um, what are your thoughts about how the Revs can improve their finishing and, and finally score some goals? Only two goals through the first three games of this tournament. Yeah, no, I, I agree that that's you know that's your front four. If you if you're looking for attacking options, that's your front four. Um, you know, I, I I would like to see Pania maybe not being an everyday starter and kind of more rotation with with Teal Bunbury or you know have Buchanan or Jones or somebody else step up to provide him some competition there because I actually thought Pania looked really good off the bench in this game. Um, you know, running at tired legs. So uh, yeah, I mean that's the front four, and and I think that they've created a lot of chances when they've been healthy. Um, those four guys have you know done a lot for the offense the bigger issue has been the finishing so um and you know in some senses the bigger some of the issues has been you know the final pass when it comes to gustavo bow i think we've talked a lot about how he's been in positions to set up buxa and the pass has been just a little bit off but you know they've created plenty of chances those first two games and if those guys are healthy um then i think the revolution are going to score goals but uh you know the bigger question for me is when carly's heel is out and, you know, he certainly might be out for the next round. He might be out longer than that. Um, how do the revolution create chances then? And that certainly didn't work in the first half of this game when, you know, the revolution, I think, you know, 30, 35 minutes in hadn't had a shot yet. Um, and, you know, how do, how do they fix that? And I'm not really sure how they fix that. I think they're, you know, they rely so much on Carle's heel uh, to create chances and their system flows so much through him, um, you know, really under Brad Friedel, the way their attack made chances was kind of pressing uh, and counterattacking. And a lot of these guys worked well on that system without kind of a, without necessarily always having that, you know, creative playmaker like Carly's heel, you know, the first year for, for Brad Friedel that worked. Um, but Bruce Arena doesn't play that way. So when, when Carly's heel is out, I think they almost need a plan B on the tactics and, and trying to find a way to switch things up to create chances. And maybe that is pressing a little bit more and creating more turnovers, but um, they seem a bit listless when Carly's heel is out. And certainly when both Carly's heel and Gustavo Bo are out. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, we did get one comment, too, that I think is a bit relevant to uh, that previous question. MJ says, moving forward in the tournament, I would like to bring Christian Pania in off the bench at the 60-minute mark or so. His speed and creati- creativity open up a lot of potential chances against a tired defense. Um, and I didn't really even think of that, but I kind of agree with that. I think Christian Pania uh, is really good one-on-one and can really break away from defenders. Um, I know he's had kind of a Jekyll and Hyde uh, type of tournament here, so... I mean, what do you think about maybe playing Teal Bunbury on the left wing or even Dewan Jones and bringing in Christian Pena off the bench as a super sub? Yeah, and this this all kind of, again, goes back to if, if Carlos Hill is playing. If Carlos Hill is playing, I like that idea, and I like, you know, putting Teal Bunbury out there from the start and, and giving him, you know, maybe 60 minutes and then bring Pena on to, to run at tired legs. I think that could work very well, um, like it did in this game. I think Pena looked very good for those last 30 minutes of this game. Um, you know, if, if Carlos Hill isn't out there, I think by default you have to start Christian Pena and you have to start Teal Bunbury. Um, I don't think Tejan Buchanan showed enough in this game to, to start right away. I don't think he's going to be starting in the knockout round games. Um, you know, Dewan Jones, like we discussed, hasn't had a chance in midfield. I don't think Justin Runnings has showed enough to, you know, to play a starting role. Um, you know, one guy I'd like to see more of is Damian Rivera. I think we we heard before the tournament that, you know, Bruce Arena made some comment that we might see him. He looked really good in preseason. We haven't seen him at all. Um, you know, he was another guy that maybe late in this game we could have seen, but we didn't. Um, so, you know, if if, if Carlos Heel is out, I agree with that comment. If Carlos Heel, I mean, if Carlos Heel is in, I agree with that comment. If Carlos Heel is out, um, I think you're stuck by default starting Christian Pena. We got a question, a Carlos Heel related question from David Sabian, who says he's really freaking out about the Carly's heel uh, injury in, in the walking boot. Uh, he wants to know if you would consider shutting down Carly's heel for the tournament. Uh, he thinks that he, he wants to shut him down for the season and have him fully healthy for next year. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know exactly what's wrong um, with Carly's heel. The, the way Bruce Arena talked after the game was that, you know, he might play in the next game and they'd see how he looks this weekend. So, um, you know, maybe it's not that serious. I completely get the sentiment of, of shutting him down. Um, shutting him down for the season seems, you know, a bit much. Well, I mean, if there is a season, if the if, if the Revolution are playing in September, I think it's probably over overkill to say shut Carly's heel down until 2021. Um, you know, but the incentive for the tournament, I can, I can kind of see that. Uh, with that said, I think, you know, Bruce Arena's pretty much takes a cautious approach to his players in, in health. And if, um, if Carly's heel isn't a hundred percent, um, I don't think he's going to rush him back. Um, but you know, we really don't know the extent of this injury and the fact that Arena's even you know, suggesting that he could be playing in the next game, um, you know, lets me know that maybe it's not that bad, but at the same time he was, you know, in a walking boot. Uh, I think somebody in the press conference essentially asked him if there was, you know, said it looked like something was wrong with 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 uh Carly's heel and you know arena in his classic sarcastic way said of course there is he's in a good walking boot <laughs> but um but yeah i mean we'll we'll see what happens i'd be surprised if he starts the next game i think you know regardless that that's probably rushing him but uh it's too soon for me to say shut him down for the season um especially because we don't know how long the season's going to be or when the season's going to resume yeah, I mean, the season might be one or two more games for the Revolution. They might be calling it after uh, this tournament because I know USL is playing right now. If that experiment goes you know, sideways or if baseball goes sideways, um, I'm not sure if MLS... MLS is now in the spot where they get to kind of wait and see other sports and how they play out before seeing if they want to do empty stadium games and whatnot. Um, although the Canadian teams apparently have to find new stadiums. Uh, so tough, <laughs> tough luck for them. But... Um, yeah, oh. well, it, it's it's really concerning, right? That we, you know, it, it sounded like Carly's heel was close to coming back. You know, in in March, we, you know, it was kind of a week by week thing on when Carly's heel would be back at the beginning of the season. And now all of a sudden, you got you know four months off um, for this Orlando tournament, and the the injury is still there, and it's coming back. To me, that's that is pretty concerning. Well, and he Carly's heel said in a when he was answering questions last week, I think before the the DC United game, he said his his foot was not a hundred percent. Um, so that that really was a concerning question uh, or a, a concerning comment, and we we don't know what the foot injury ever was, what's ever caused this. Um, it's not out of the realm of possibility that he is holding off on surgery. Uh, so again, that is complete speculation. I have no sources on that. I have not heard that he needs surgery. But four months where you are not playing in games and you're still not a hundred percent. 
Um, it's a concern. And then he leaves this game, and he's in a walking boot. Um, and, and Bruce Arena, again, noncommittal, uh, his exact words here, we're going day-to-day, see how he's reacting and whether he gets himself ready to play over the weekend. Um, you know, that's a non-answer. So I would expect to see him at least available for the game. I would be shocked if he's unavailable for Saturday's game or, or Monday's game, whichever it is. Um, but I, I I don't know. I, I it is it is a bit concerning. I, I wouldn't shut him down for the season, um, but maybe you limit his minutes. Maybe you take a kind of a similar strategy to this game, where you're you're hoping to get to zero zero at halftime, and then you throw in heel uh, and, and kind of limit his minutes. But I, I really don't like this. I I, I mean, I think your see the rev season could be one or two more games. Um, I, I think you got to throw him out there and see what happens. Yeah, there's there's just no there's no telling how much longer the season goes. And I think the revolution with Carleus Hill have a legitimate shot of, you know, making noise in the knockout rounds of this tournament. And without Carleus Hill, you know, I, I don't think their odds are very good of going very far at all. David also asks us what was different from the beginning of the second half. In his mind, it was a mentality of dribbling out of our half. Maybe they tried to get too fancy and focused more on making simple passes in the second half of today's game. Uh, Sean, what really changed for you between the first half, which was pretty dreadful for the Revs, they seemed completely outmatched, and the second half when they came out with a lot more energy? Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of it is is what he said, Um, but a lot of it is just the fact that, again, this was, you know, more than 50% of the lineup changed. Um, a lot of these guys hadn't started a match in, you know, since in, in four months. A lot of these guys hadn't played together in a competitive game in four months. Um, and, you know, when you're changing three out of four guys in the back line, that's a huge change. Um, when you're changing, uh, you know, three three guys out of your front four, that's a huge change. So, um, they had a lot to overcome and they didn't seem, like I said, they didn't seem prepared from the opening whistle. Um, and Toronto's a really good team that can pounce on that. And they did, and they controlled possession and they really dominated. And I think Bruce Arena, you know, brought him in at halftime. Um, I think the Zahibo moved help, you know, Zahibo is a more imposing player that can kind of have an impact on the game that way. And I think he did. Um, but I also think it was Bruce Arena kind of telling everybody what they needed to do. I, you know, he's a guy that certainly you could tell on his face saw a lot wrong in that first half. Um, and he, you know, he said it in the interview during the game that he saw a lot wrong in that first half. Um, and I think he made some adjustments and, and had the guys play a bit simpler and a bit smarter. Um, you know, one of my things that I, I think of when I look at this team and when I look at how they play in that first half, and, and, and Greg, let me know if you you know agree with this theory, is that you know a lot of these guys under Brad Friedel were forced for a really long time to play a style of soccer that did not put any emphasis or importance on keeping possession. And I think now some of that is still trying to drill that out of them because Bruce Arena hasn't been in charge that long. Um, they lost those four months. Um, and when you put out a lineup that you know, was a lot of Brad Friedel guys in this game um, and, you know, some younger guys that Brad Friedel kind of gave them their first pro experience or some guys that played under Brad Friedel long enough to, you know, really have an impact on on their style. Um, you know, you wonder if that kind of is part of you know what's wrong here, where I don't think Kellen Rowe is necessarily a bad player in possession. I don't think Diego Fagundes is necessarily a bad player in possession, but uh, they were forced under Brad Friedel to not put an emphasis on that. Um, and, you know, maybe that's part of the problem that they're still trying to you know work that out of their system. Yeah. And if you look at the lineup too, Kellen Rowe, Scott Caldwell, Diego Fagundes, Teal Bunbury, Adam Buxa, Tayon Buchanan, that, that's, those are the guys playing in front of your defensive back four. That's a lineup they would have run out two years ago. You know what right. I mean? That's not, those aren't scrub players. Those aren't super draft picks. I know, I mean, I tell you, Buchanan is a second year player and he's a super draft pick, but you know, he had some, some pretty decent games last year. Um, and I don't think he's a horrible player, although I, I don't think he hasn't, he had a great game today, but you know, that, that's not a terrible lineup. I mean, they, they should be able to string together some passes and create some chances. And, and there was just no offense in this today. It reminded me a lot of the um, Louisville City uh, U.S. Open Cup game where they threw out probably the worst 11 uh, combination possible. And, and even though they scored two, two goals, they were kind of gift wrapped by Louisville. And, and they really just couldn't move anything into the attacking third. So this wasn't a terrible lineup. And, and uh, maybe your theory is correct. I have another theory that they just struggled adapting to the 9 a.m. game. Uh, Toronto had a uh, had a 9 a.m. game a few weeks ago. I I, I don't want to say that impacted it a whole lot, but I, I'm sure that they they didn't look awake in the first half. And some of them haven't played yet in this tournament. Some of them played five or ten minutes. Um, I I just think it might have been they weren't totally prepared for that 9 a.m. time. Uh, but your your theory I think makes a lot more um, a lot more sense from a tactical standpoint, and it's it's less of an excuse. So I'll, I'll, I'll concede to you. I think your, your point makes a lot more sense. 
No, I, I think you're absolutely right too. Though the the 9 a.m. games in general have been, if you've you know if you've watched some of them, have been more disjointed than some of the later games, regardless of who the teams are. Um, and you're right too when you have like a lot of guys stepping in for the first game, it makes it even harder. But um, you also would have thought that some of these guys getting an opportunity they don't normally get would have stepped up more and and been more uh, you know awake from the opening whistle and re- and ready to go. And I don't think we saw that. And, and the only change, I mean, they put in Wolford Zahibo, but Wolford Zahibo doesn't make that much of a change. I mean, I, I think the players that played both halves today or played 90 minutes played significantly better at the end of the game th- than at the beginning. Right. So, uh, Powder Hungry asks us, uh, why wasn't the sideline official criticized more for flagging Tayon Buchanan for uh, offsides? It was a game-changing call, especially given the draw. Uh, he's talking about the chance early in the game. I think it was around the seventh minute where Tayon Buchanan is flagged for offsides. My understanding is that it was not. they were not flagging Tayon. They were flagging Adam Buxa. Um, and, and apparently he received a pass where he came back from an offsides position, uh, and then Tayon kind of had, had a breakaway later in that sequence, uh, So, which kind of makes sense, too, because the flag went up. Uh, Sean, is that what you heard? Yeah, so I, it was actually um, I, when I was watching the play and I you know, went back to watch it again, you know, Tejon Buchanan did not look offsides. So I, I had the uh, the same question, and then I you know tweeted about it, and I think it was Chris Lucas that pointed out um, that Adam Buxa, he thinks, was the one that was actually called offside. And if you watch the play, um, I'm not sure there was a good video angle of it, but it was, you know, the, the play was a, a quick throw-in, um, and it's, you know, perfectly possible and likely, if anything, that Adam Buxa was kind of pushing the line on defense at that point. And you see him coming back into the play um, when he receives the ball and gets kind of a, you know, gets a pass and lays it off for Dewan Jones and, and springs Dewan Jones. And well, I. I didn't see a video angle to tell me that Adam Buxa was offside. I didn't see a video angle to tell me where Adam Buxa was at the beginning of that pass. So um, it's perfectly possible as Adam Buxa. And given the timing of the whistle and how fast it came and when the flag went up, I don't think they were calling Tejan Buchanan offside. I do think it was probably Adam Buxa. And um, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say Adam Buxa probably was offside. And it's perfectly plausible based on what I was seeing. Yeah. And speaking of Chris Lucas, he asks us from the group stage, which Revs player was the best surprise to you on the flip side? Who disappointed the most? I would say Alexander Butner was the biggest surprise to me. Um, you know, I got to say, I was one of the people that didn't have the highest expectations for him going into the season. You know, I looked back at his injury history. I looked back at you know, his history of showing up to training camps overweight. Uh, reportedly, I looked back at um, you know, his age, the number of miles that were on his legs, um, the fact that he hadn't you know, played a competitive match. And in, in I think going into this tournament a year um, and, you know, he stepped right in there and, and went close to 90 minutes in two games and looked really, really good. Um, you know, you mentioned the second game. He didn't look as good. He certainly didn't look as good offensively and passing in the second game. But defensively, he did a really good job in, in, in both games. So um, to me, he was the big surprise. I think, you know, a lot of people might say Kellen Rowe was the big surprise, but to be honest, I, I still don't know what to make of Kellen Rowe in that central midfield position, what we saw from those first three games, because I, I still think he makes you know, too many big mistakes and big moments um, to be your everyday starter there. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I agree. I'm going to go with Kellen Rowe just because I think he won the most minutes. Um, I guess Scott Caldwell, too, made a case for minutes, but I, I think when Matt Polster comes in, I, I don't think we're going to see a whole lot of Scott Caldwell. I think he's there for depth, and we're, we're going to see more of what we saw last year from him. I don't think he's a starter going forward. Whereas Kellen Rowe, I think, has made a very good argument that he's a legitimate starter, which is something that we wouldn't have guessed after the Chicago game back in March. So uh, I'm going I'm to mark him down as a, a surprise. Although Bootner, too, um, just from what we saw from those two games uh, and how well he looked, I think I, I, he, he certainly deserves a lot of positive marks. Um, did you give a biggest disappointment, Sean? No, I didn't give yeah. a biggest. Who was your biggest disappointment? Oh, that's a that's a tough one. I mean, I I don't think I know. I've seen a lot of people be disappointed in Adam Buxa. I'm not ready to say that. I think he you know he actually um, was a you know a few inches away from you know having ending this group stage with multiple goals and multiple assists. Um, I don't think the Revolution have had him as involved as I'd like. So so that was a, a disappointment. Um, but you know, I, I, I don't know who my biggest disappointment would be in this one. I think I think it's tough because all every player had kind of their moments um, in the tournament. Um, you know, it's it's hard to say, you know, Tejan Buchanan, I, I think it would have been nice to see more out of him in his, his one appearance. But I don't know that much was expected out of him going into this. Um, yeah, I guess I guess if I'm if I'm going to be, you know, harsh, I might even point to to Scott Caldwell um, for the lack of the impact that he kind of had in the, in the second two games he played in the tournament or the, the second and third game of the tournament. Yeah, if the question was, what was the biggest disappointment? I would say not being able to see kind of some of the younger players seeing zero Isaac King and zero Damian Rivera 
certainly I think would top my list of disappointments. But since yes. the question was who is the biggest disappointment, I'm going to have to change it around a little bit. Um, I, I think Diego Fagundes is just, I mean, I don't know what's happened to him. He, he played decent okay. I mean, he played okay. Um, we've seen some passing charts and, you know, they're they're okay, but he he didn't he doesn't he's not a dangerous player anymore. I'm not sure what's happened to Diego Fagundes where he's 25 years old, and I mean he he seems like completely washed up. I mean this is a guy that was the 10 uh, in Brad Friedel's first year two years ago, and now I mean he, he he comes off the bench. He's really just filling in roles where I mean, I mean when you need someone to fit somewhere, um, but he's not making a whole lot of noise. And today he gets 90 minutes, played okay, but. You know, as I say, at 25 years old, Diego Fagundes just isn't fitting in with this team, uh, and and I I don't know what the solution is for Diego Fagundes here. And um, you know, this was a tournament where people are going to get their chances to to make the case for some minutes, like Kellen Rowe. Um, I know you said Scott Caldwell is on your list of disappointments, but I thought Scott Caldwell had a pretty solid tournament uh, and and didn't make too too many mistakes, at least none that are catastrophic. Um, and Diego Fagundes really just was non-existent in this this tournament, uh, even in limited time, and today against Toronto. Look, I completely agree with you. I think that's a good shout. The only thing I will say is that I do think he was one of those guys that in particular um, was much better in the second half against Toronto than he was in the first half. And even kind of taking a look quickly at his stats, um, you mentioned that passing chart, his passing chart in the first half, you know, he, he was 10 of 13. Um, but, you know, none of those passes were particularly eye-opening or things that really led to anything. You look at his second half passing chart, um, he was 22 of 26, so he completed more than twice as many passes. And, you know, there were a lot more passes that actually, you know, led to, to things going forward. So um, he was a guy, you know, he, he's a guy that I think plays better when he has good players around him, whether that's, you know, Gustavo Bo or, or Carles Hill. Um, but yeah, no, he, he didn't have you know, much of an influence at all when he came on for Carlos Hill against Toronto. I'm not against Toronto against DC. And then he didn't do much at all in the first half of this game. Um, But I do think there was kind of a a glimmer of hope from him and what we saw in the second half of Toronto, but overall consistency from Diego Fagundes um, just hasn't been there in the past couple of years because, you know, he was the one guy that, at the beginning of Brad Friedel's tenure, uh, was probably performing the best of anybody, um, and then just kind of completely fell off from the map towards the you know second half of that season, and then going into Brad Friedel's second season, and yeah, I'm not sure he's ever really fully recovered. And, and he's in a contract year too. I, I cannot imagine he is willing to come back to the Revs under any circumstances, just because he's going. He's been reduced to a 10 minute a game player, and I hope he can revive his career elsewhere. But I mean, he has fallen so far off the map in the last two years. It's it's very disappointing. So. Um, we did get a question about Teon Buchanan. I, I want to go to this one really quickly, and we have some questions on Discord. If you're on Discord, please join the New England Revolution Discord uh, where they talk about games, and we uh, we get some questions from them as well. So uh, OSZ19 asks us, thought Teon was our best attacker uh, and is showing a lot of promise, but his decision-making is still not desirable. Did uh, today's performance hurt or help him? John? Uh, I think it hurt him. Um, I, I don't think he was their best attacker. I think there were moments in this game where he, you know, he used his pace and created stuff and he combined well with, with Brandon by, but, um, his passing chart in particular was, was horrendous. I think he was a 60% passer in this game. Um, he only attempted one forward pass, um, and he didn't complete it. Uh, so there were moments that, you know, where in the eye test, he, he looked good, but there were, you know, a lot of moments where he, he lost the ball, turned it over. Um, and, you know, to be honest, going forward and, you know, I've been a critic of Brandon Byer over the years. I think he's been having a fantastic season. Uh, I thought the revolution looked a lot more dangerous in this game on the opportunities where Brandon Byer pushed forward and Tejan Buchanan stayed back to cover for him than they did when Tejan Buchanan was the one going forward. Yeah, and the thing you got to remember, too, about Tejan Buchanan is he came out of college two years early. So in my mind, he's a really strong candidate for getting some minutes at Revs 2 in League 1 and playing him 90 minutes. And I, I'm curious to see if he could play striker because um, he is really, really fast, but he's just not a totally great passer. Um, but his, his speed is such a weapon. Um, they they got to figure out a way to make him more effective. But uh, yeah, 0 for 4 on crosses today. Uh, he had five ball recoveries, two possessions, um, 11 for 16 passing. And I believe he played all 90 minutes. Is that correct, Sean? I'm trying to think if he was subbed off. I don't think he was. Or, no, I think, he, I think he was. He came off. For um, Pena? Oh, I don't remember. Yeah. These 9 a.m. I wasn't awake. I didn't have my coffee before this game. So, but um, no, I, I mean, no, actually, no, I, t- I take it. I take it back. He, he wasn't subbed off. I yeah. just kind of forgot he was out there towards the end of the game. How dare you question me? 
but Tyone Buchanan had that, that really nice run that was called back for offsides. But so there were some glimmers, and I, I think he's just still a very, very raw talent. And the fact that he was kind of buried last year under Bruce Arena, but he's been he was one of Bruce's three subs coming off the bench late late in games. Uh, it shows that Bruce Arena sees something in him. So um, I don't think this game helped him. I would probably say it hurt him because this was his audition and. There was just nothing outside of that run that was called back for offsides. There, I, I, there wasn't a whole lot going for him, but uh, his, his speed is a weapon. And I'm curious to see how the Revs handle him and how they try to develop him because he could be a, a pretty solid MLS player in, I'll say, one or two years, um, which seems like a long time. But, I mean, he'd still only be 22 at that point. That's what Dewan Jones was in his rookie season. So, um, yeah, I, I think overall today hurt him. So. Well, you 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 make you know a couple of great points, and and one is that yes, we should give him credit for that run he made in the offside goal, and also the you know very crafty finish to chip it over the goalkeeper there. That was you know a veteran move there. That was I think that was his highlight of the game, and it didn't count. Um, so that's unfortunate for him. Um, but the other point you made is you know he's a guy that I think needs a lot more minutes, and I think it hurt him last year that he was buried on the bench and wasn't loaned out and, and seeing a lot of time. Um, you know he was a guy that would have benefited a lot from there being a revs two last year to get those minutes. Um, and you know at that age that probably didn't help his growth. So uh, yeah, one way or the other, I think he needs a lot of minutes this year, whether it's with the revs or with the revs two. Um, certainly losing the last four months didn't help him. Um, so there's a lot of promise there. There's a lot of skill. Um, but I don't think he's quite there yet and certainly not ready to be a, you know, a starter for the revolution on, you know, any regular basis. I'm curious too. Revs two announced this week that their season starts July 25th. If the revs get knocked out of this tournament, which they won't, they're going to win. But if they do, (laughs) I'm curious to see how many players get assigned while the revs are kind of in this hiatus period until part two of this, or I guess part three uh, of this season, the post COVID cup tournament. Um, once that schedule kicks off, because I imagine there's going to be some lag time where they're just going to go back and train. And I think Tayon Buchanan and Justin Rennicks, and I think the guys that are right now on the bench, maybe Dewan Jones, but I, I think he's pretty much solidified his spot. But I, I wonder if they're going to be getting some minutes down in revs too, so we can see what they do, because they're certainly not giving minutes to the younger guys, which we had kind of hoped to see at the beginning of this tournament. And, and on, that yeah. note, on that note, before you chip in, I'm going to get this question in because uh, it's a perfect transition. But TSB11 on Discord asks us 14 minutes for young uh, Rev young revs homegrowns so far in the tournament all of them from justin rennix what's going to need to happen for isaac anking or damian rivera to see the field would zach haravo have had better luck finding the field um which is a joke because there's no way zach haravo would have found the field at all in this tournament if we're if we're not giving minutes to isaac anking or justin rennix uh zach haravo who was in um you know outside of the 18 purgatory for half a decade (laughs) you know kind of the kind of the uh poster child of failed developed prospects for the revolution um i'm a little concerned though that these maybe not isaac anking and damian rivera uh because those guys are a little bit younger but justin rennix i mean i was texting you uh, offline about this a few days ago, Sean, I'm starting to get a little bit of a, a, a Zach Harville feel from him that uh, he might be wasting away and he's not properly developed. So um, what needs to happen for our young homegrooms to see the field? Well, first of all, the, the only thing that Zach Harville would have had going for him in this tournament is the position he plays, because I think that's what's been working against a lot of these guys. If, if you were a you know central kind of defensive minded midfielder going into this tournament with Zahibo injured and with Luis Caicedo out and with Matt Polster unavailable, that might have played to your benefit. Um, but, but, you know, other than that, I, you know, I don't think Justin Rennick's has had enough minutes to really have a full assessment, but I also don't think he's looked particularly great when he has come on. Um, I mean, he, he came out of this game and, you know, had that one shot and it was with his you know, strong foot, but it was a, a very, very weak effort right at the keeper. Um, and I'm not sure he did a, a whole lot else in this one. Um, we've seen flashes from him, but you know, there's nothing for me to say that, you know, in these limited minutes, he's done something to earn, you know, a longer outing out there. So um, that's kind of disappointing. Um, you know, what I think will help all these guys is, again, having Revs 2 there, having them be able to train with the first team and get minutes with the Revs 2 team and, you know, show something there. I think that's something that could benefit all of these guys. Um, but, you know, I don't think Justin Rennox and any of his appearances for the Revs so far has has necessarily shown enough to tell me that, you know, them not giving him minutes isn't warranted. So, uh, you know, and on top of that, you know, Damon Rivera, he's the one of the guys that you know, of, of all of them, I thought showed the most in preseason. Um, and I thought we would have seen him in this tournament. And, I, and like I said, I think Bruce Arena said we were probably going to see him in this tournament. We didn't see him. Um, and, you know, as we get into the knockout stage, I think there's less of a chance we see him. So that's really disappointing. Um, you know, Isaac and King uh, in his limited minutes for the revolution has, has looked good. 
Um, so I always wonder what's going on there. And he is a guy that potentially could have seen some time in central midfield. So I don't know what the deal is there. But, you know, it, it again goes back to the conversation that we had on the last podcast. And that's Bruce Arena has been a guy that's always been very, very, very reliant on his veteran players. Um, you know, he's an older coach. He wants to win now. He knows who he can trust. Um, and, you know, losing four months of training with these guys certainly didn't help things. Uh, but um, I think that's just who Bruce Arena is. If you're looking for somebody to come out there and play with the kids and, you know, get them to develop, and I do think that's important, then, you know, Bruce Arena probably wasn't the right hire. That's a good way to say it. Although you could also say that Bruce Arena, under Bruce Arena, they've created uh, the academy and Revs too, and they're they're a little more focused on Revs de- on youth development and, and college age development. So uh, I guess you could say that they are looking to bridge the gap. But players are going to have to really earn their spot in the starting lineup because, as you say, Bruce is going to go to a Matt Polster uh, instead of an Isaac Anking. He's going to treat. He's going to trust his veteran players. Um, over over the younger guys, so you, they really have to break through and re- really earn those minutes. And um, I don't know, it's it's I don't know. I, I would like to see Isaac Anking and Justin Reddicks because I feel like they are at ages where it's uh, you you want to see something from them to know where their career path is going. Uh, and and we I, I thought the tournament was going to answer some of those questions, and it really has not. So and I can't I can't imagine any questions will be solved um, in the uh, in the knockout stages of this tournament. Well, just just go back and look at Bruce Arena's record with the Galaxy and, you know, the youth players that came up there and there there just weren't many. And that's one of the knocks on him. Um, if you you know talk to Galaxy fans or Galaxy reporters that followed the team back then is that he didn't really give the youth that much opportunity. So, um, you know, there are some promising youngsters on the revs, but, you know, in limited minutes, they haven't done enough to force Bruce Arena's hand. Um, and, I'm you know, maybe revs too helps that gives them that opportunity. But, you know, the Galaxy have always had, you know, fairly robust reserve teams and in, in situations that the revolution haven't had. And it didn't really benefit, uh, didn't really lead to them getting many opportunities either. Uh, moving on, this is a question that might be a little bit redundant, but I missed it earlier. Dave Aikman asks us, what is the one position you think has been the biggest strength and weakness throughout the group stage? And he says, not necessarily an individual player, uh, but it could be. Um, I, I think based on my key takeaway, I would say the defense has looked very solid overall. I'll give that entire back line and Matt Turner credit because I think they have uh, looked really, really solid. Um, weakness, I would say finishing, not even attacking, because uh, I think that they have been able to create chances. Carly's heel, obviously, in that first game. Uh, and then we, we kind of noted in the D.C. game there were a few shots that were missed. Christian Pena, Gustavo Bo, I'm not going to uh, redo the whole thing. But um, overall, I think the, the finishing is really the area that needs to be improved upon and if they start converting at a pretty decent rate the revs are going to be pouring in you know at least two or three goals a game yeah i'm going to focus on the two areas that i said the revolution needed to improve in before the season started and one of them is what i'm going to say was the revolution's strength in this tournament and that was the fullback play um i thought the revolution got some very very good play out of their fullbacks again some of that was situational that you know there was a lot more opportunity for you know, Brandon Bay to attack in those first two games than than uh, maybe he will always get. Um, but I thought he had a really good tournament. I thought you know Bootner, as we discussed, had a really good tournament, and I thought Dewan Jones filled in really nicely at left back in that last game. So. Um, you know, what I thought was a weakness going into the season, uh, you know, looked really good in this tournament. Um, on on the other side, what I thought was a weakness going into the season, I still kind of think is a weakness, and that's the central midfield spot. Um, and, you know, yes, I think Kellen Rowe was okay. I think Scott Caldwell, you know, didn't do too much wrong. Um, but when you're talking about a central midfielder, or the central midfield role, I think you really do need a guy in there that is more influential. And, you know, maybe that's not going to be someone that's the level of influence of Jermaine Jones or Shari Joseph, because those players are really hard to find. Uh, but to me, the revolution central midfielders are all, you know, really good options as your complimentary guy next to the guy that's influential central midfielder. And, and, and that includes Zahibo, I think. And, and Roe Caldwell and Zahibo, you have three guys that are perfectly serviceable MLS players that can, you know, be regular starters for you, but all of them, um, the revs would benefit tremendously from having someone more influential from, and, you know, with Carles heel out and with Gustavo bow out, um, you know, the revolutionary team that are capable when those guys are out there of relying on their attack. Uh, but with them not out there, I think it's even more important that they have somebody that steps up in that central midfield role and kind of can dictate the flow of a game. And I don't think any of those guys can do it. And I think that kind of showed, um, particularly in the last game. We do have a question here from C Money asking us, depending on where the Revs finish, which matchup would you prefer? Uh, editor's note here, we are recording this right now. It's 10 p.m. on Tuesday, so this is before the D.C. game. So as of right now, the Revs could end up as the two or three seed, but there's three possible matchups based on what we know so far. Philadelphia, San Jose, and Orlando. Philadelphia is who we would play if 
DC United does not win tonight. Uh, and then San Jose, San Jose or Orlando would be um, one of the one seeds the Revs would play if the Revs fall to third place, if DC United um, does win. Uh, Sean, of those three teams, which matchup do you prefer? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting because all three of those teams have seven points. All three of those teams haven't lost a game. Um, you know, San Jose and Orlando have the exact same goal record, six goals, four, three goals against. Union have four goals, four, two goals against. Um, you know, going into this tournament, um, I would say the team I wouldn't want to play is the Philadelphia Union because, you know, they to me are are you know probably the best roster of those teams, or at least from what we've seen over the years. Um, Orlando, though, has has been the surprise team of the tournament for me. They've been playing phenomenally well. Um, and the way they're playing right now, I think they'd give the revolution a, a lot of problems. So, um, well, historically, I think I'd go Philadelphia. I think Orlando's the team that if I'm the revolution, I want to avoid because, you know, for one, they're used to this weather. They're down in Orlando. Um, they may not have a home field advantage because it's not their home field and it's not a crowd, um, but they are used to the, the climate. Um, and two, they're just playing phenomenally well in this tournament. Um, you know, if I were to pick the the team I would want to play, I, you know, I, I'd say maybe San Jose. Um, but again, that's more based on kind of, you know, historically watching them play as opposed to in this tournament in which they've played really, really well. So, you know, regardless of which of those three teams they're going against, they're going against a very hot team. And I think uh, Monty Rodriguez uh, w- w- made a comment on this. I, I believe it was him. Uh, yeah. Philly scares me because of Blake. It's just that simple. And I, I think that's true. I, I think when you're the Revs and, you know, Gustavo Bo takes a lot of long-range shots uh, and Bill Hamid kind of brushed them away easily, I think Andre Blake would kind of uh, have a, a bit of a, a similar matchup. So I, I the way I kind of see it is I, I think Philadelphia is the one team I don't want to see of those three. Um, Orlando has been playing really, really well. Um, I'm, I still don't know if it's fluky. I'm, I'm still not completely sold on Orlando, but they have been very impressive in this tournament. And you could say the same thing with San Jose. So I, I think if I'm listing them, I'm, I'm kind of going with your, uh, with your order of San Jose, Orlando, and Philadelphia. Uh, and, and we put out this as a, as a poll after the game today, uh, 79 votes, 47% said San Jose, 40.5% said Orlando, and then 12.7% said Philadelphia. So that's kind of around the percentages that I'm at. Where you know I, I could make an argument for either San Jose or Orlando, um, Philadelphia I think is the worst matchup of the Rebs. Uh, but with that being said, I wouldn't. I mean, the Rebs can beat all three of those teams. I don't, I don't think any of those teams are aren't beatable. That the Rebs, if they're fully healthy, and if they play the way they have been playing, I, I don't think any of those teams are teams the Rebs cannot beat in the round of sixteen. Well, and, and part of the reason that Andre Blake has looked so good in this tournament is that he's faced a lot of shots. He's actually faced 34 shots, which I think is by far the most of, of you know any keeper, or at least any keeper that's uh, you know shown like he has. So their defense is leaking chances. Um, and you know Andre Blake is a phenomenal goalkeeper, the best goalkeeper in MLS. But um, you know if he's facing that many shots, he's going to let one or two in. So you know I, I agree about of that. You know. Facing a hot goalkeeper is difficult, but I think Orlando, given the climate, given the way they're playing, um, that's a tough matchup. It's always hard to, you know, again, they're kind of the host team, and it's always hard to kind of knock the host team out. Last question here from Quite Revs. Actually, it's a two-part question. He asks, who is the dark horse for the MLS's back tournament, and will Inter-Miami ever win a game? Um, I, I'm going to field the second one first because it's easier. No. Uh, so that question is done. But uh, let's move on to the dark horse question. Sean, who's your dark horse for the MLS's back tournament? I think we talked about a couple of them between San Jose and Orlando. Um, I think both of those could go down as dark horses. Um, but the, by far, my biggest surprise is Orlando because they've just been playing phenomenally. They don't look like the same team um, that we've seen in the past. And I'm not sure why. Um, but because of that, I think they go down as kind of my my dark horse to win it all. And I'm looking at kind of the the 538 rankings of who has the best chance to win it. And they're down below uh, the revolution. So I think that would make them officially a dark horse. But uh, But that's who I'm going to go with. I was going to say, you could maybe make the case the Revolution are the dark horse in this tournament um, just because they have five points and they might be a three seed, but they've played three solid games. I mean, they could have easily come away with um, all all three of those wins. Oh, did we complain about the Gustavo Bo penalty yet? Or have I not touched no, on that? We, I was going to talk about, about Oh, wait, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, okay, let me, sorry. Yeah, I, I skimmed over that. I'm sorry. We need, to, we need to complain about that one. But anyway, the Revs could have come away with nine points, but instead they're going to come away with five points and potentially are a three seed. So I think you could make a case the Revs are the dark horse. Um, outside of that, I think Group D, Real Salt Lake, 
Minnesota United, Sporting Kansas City. All three of those teams are, are going to advance. I, I, I think Minnesota United and Real Salt Lake, you can argue, are, are dark horses. Um, outside of that, yeah, I think I think Orlando kind of fits the bill, but they've looked really, really good, and I don't think they're going to really surprise anyone. They're not going to come out of the woodworks and really shock anyone. If New York City FC advances, I mean, I don't really call them a dark horse, but they look so bad. Um, but they still have so much talent. I could see them making a run. Um, the, so I, 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 there are a few dark horses. If I, if you were to, to force me to name one, I, I would just kind of pick your poison, poison in, in Group D because I think Sporting Kansas City, Minnesota, and Real Salt Lake have all kind of they've played very entertaining soccer and they've all kind of beaten up on each other. Um, and I think all three of those teams could make a bit of a dark horse run, but they're not necessarily, necessarily being talked about that much. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with all that. And just quickly because I pulled it up, um, you know, if you're thinking about Rev's opponents, again, um, by far the toughest, according to the 538 system, would be Philadelphia. So that kind of ties to what you were saying. Um, just thought that was interesting with, with San Jose and Orlando much closer to the bottom of the possible opponents for anyone in the in the knockout rounds. Okay, so back to the refereeing. What the hell? You know, like, what, what I mean, very clear penalty on Michael Bradley, uh, on Gustavo Bo, uh, no VAR. I... I, I I don't know. I'm completely speechless, uh, and the Revs completely got screwed uh, out of this game. And I, I was expecting TFC to be awarded a penalty on the other side, just because that's kind of how these things work out. Luckily, VAR got that one right, um, and and Dewan Jones really getting lucky that you know he he didn't get a more of a, a severe punishment there for that uh, foul line. I think it was Pozuelo, but um, yeah, I mean Gustavo Bo not getting the penalty call was absolutely outrageous and i can't believe it's taken me 55 minutes uh, into this <laughs> podcast to get there um considering that was almost going to be my uh <laughs> my my key takeaway that uh, the refereeing was uh tremendously poor and the decision not to go to var i mean if the referee misses it on the field that's one thing but someone in the booth is not telling him to go to var um that is embarrassing that is a complete embarrassment and um you know if if the revs end up getting a worse draw than dc united uh, or or tfc depending on how the standings shake out I mean that penalty call is is not or non penalty call is pretty big. Yeah, well, I think it was clearly a foul, but I do think Gustavo Bo hurt hurt his chances of getting the penalty by kind of jumping into the air before the contact was made. Um, you know, if he if he had run through it and and had the foul happen, I think it would have been called. But I think that kind of worked against him. And again, it doesn't stop from being a foul. It was a foul. Um, but I I do think that that's what kind of hurt him there was that. You know, before he was even touched, he was jumping into the air. And maybe maybe you could claim he was jumping to avoid the touch. I'm not sure that was the case, but um, he he almost tried to sell it too much, even though it was a foul. And I think that hurt him. Um, on, on the flip side, though, you, you mentioned the VIR got the Dewan Jones chance, right? There was also the, the Pania handball on that Altidore shot. And, and yeah, I don't think there was anything Pania could have done to move his hands out of his way, but his hands weren't out of side. Um, and we have seen that called the penalty kick before too. So there was some, some luck on the revolution that that didn't go to VAR and end up as a penalty kick. Uh, because in the days of VAR, I feel like we see that called more and more where, you know, guys, a guy's hands not by his side and he has zero time to react and even to flex off something before it hits his hand, but it, it did. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sure Toronto thought that should have been a PK. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not totally outraged over the result because I feel a tie is perfectly fair, uh, and I, I think the Revs kind of got what they wanted out of this game. I, I think they would have been happier with three points and to win the group, but you know, zero zero draw, fine. I mean, it, it's not terrible, but um, yeah, I mean. It, there were a lot of refereeing decisions today. I guess we should have roped Jake into this podcast that so he could have, you know, our refereeing expert. Uh, there was a lot of kind of controversy in this game. But as you said, I, I didn't think that Christian Pena handball, quote unquote, should have been anything. But that didn't go to VAR either, did it? I don't think so. I don't think so. Or at least at least at least the referee didn't go look at it. It might have gone to VAR and his headset, but he, yeah. didn't, he didn't go to the sideline to take a look. That one makes more sense to me in the sense of I don't think that was the incorrect call. So they're fine with it. But the Gustavo Bo thing, I mean. My goodness, I, I have no idea how that does not at least go to VAR. So that's my we're, we're we're transitioning into final thoughts. That's my final thoughts. That's my rant. We started it with Twitter cutting out uh, in the first game, and uh, we 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 went to Tony Delamay in the second game. And now my extremely angry rant is we're in year three or four of VAR, and we still don't know how to use it. Um, and and it's beyond my comprehension of how badly they are screwing this up. So yeah. Even even with that said, I think the the draw against DC hurts a lot more than this draw because you know Toronto was 
by far the better team for 45 minutes of this game. And the Revolution were very lucky to go into halftime tied. And, you know, it was a tough call for the Revolution. But if there was a game the Revolution deserved to win based on their play, it was D.C., not this game. And DC was self-inflicted. It's, right. it's you know, it's one thing. I've always had the, the mentality of, you know, you're going to possibly get one or two really bad calls uh, from the referees. That's just sports. And so, you know, the DC thing, that was a, a mental error on De La Maya's part. And that was, you know, as a self-inflicted. So I, I think that one is a uh, much, much more painful um, occurrence. And they just had so many other chances to you know, make the lead bigger, too, in that game and didn't. Right. So, uh, Sean, we're, we're at about an hour of this, what we said would be a 40 minute podcast. Uh, do you have any uh, final thoughts and uh, let people know where they can find you on social media? Yeah, you can follow me at, at Sean L. Donahue. And, you know, I, 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 for one, am very curious to see who the revolution play in the next round, because, you know, all three of those possibilities um, have been very exciting in this tournament. If you haven't had a chance to watch them, um, they're not the uh, the San Jose or the Orlando team of years past that has been you know underwhelming. They're really good teams right now, so um, it's going to be a big test for the Revolution, and you know maybe even a bigger test than Toronto was. Uh, and you know the first two games weren't good tests for the Revolution, so it's it's exciting to see this team face kind of better challenges. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Revolution Recap and also like our Revolution Recap Facebook page. Also, if you could, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Reviews are always appreciated. As we mentioned, we're recording this as the D.C. Montreal game is going on, or actually, I guess it's still before D.C. Montreal. But either way, we don't know who the Revs opponent is or when they'll play. But when we do know, we will be back with a new episode breaking down the knockout stage of the MLS's back tournament. Until then, thank you all for listening and go Revs.